Hello, Electorate listeners. This is Jen Taylor Skinner. I know the last few weeks have been especially hard. You know, but the only way to turn things around is political engagement. And our best chance is by becoming more engaged and volunteering for midterms, which are just around the corner. It all starts with the House. If we just flip 23 districts in the House, we'll take back the majority and finally put a check on President Trump and the regressive administration enabling him. That includes the regressive and cruel immigration policies or the latest tax cut that favors billionaires and corporations over middle-income Americans. This is not what democracy is supposed to look like. But that's how it works with Trump and the conservatives controlling the House of Representatives. We all have to work together to vote them out and flip the House in the midterms this year. We must elect progressive candidates who will hold Trump and his corrupt administration accountable. So get engaged now, because it's going to take everyone. Join Swing Left at swingleft.org slash electorate to find a nearby swing district where you can volunteer and help turn things around. This is the best chance we have to put a check on Trump. Voting is vital, but it's going to take more than voting to turn things around. We need to get fired up, get out of our comfort zones, and volunteer. So go to swingleft.org slash electorate. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I discuss the book Technically Wrong with author and tech consultant Sarah Walker Fetcher. Isn't that nice? You know, it's no secret that Silicon Valley and the tech industry has a diversity problem. The diversity numbers for women and people of color are abysmal. It's a topic I've covered before. But have you ever stopped to think what that means for their output? how the apps, software, and websites that they build are all affected by this lack of diversity. Well, I had a conversation with Sarah Walker-Betcher, whose book Technically Wrong comes out today in paperback, and she's thought all of this through. She's thought about how apps are shaped from their inception to their rollout, to their often failing user experience, and how that's all shaped by a company's culture and their values. Here is Sarah describing the culture you might find if you were to visit a typical tech company in Silicon Valley today. Well, I think if you look at the stats that most of the larger tech companies have started releasing, what you would find is that it's going to be mostly men, uh, mostly white, and particularly if you're looking at senior roles and if you're looking at roles that they deem as technical, so people working in engineering or web development or anything that they've decided fits into the technical category, uh, which, weird, those also happen to be the best paid roles. And so you get a pretty skewed view of what the world looks like, I think, when you look inside those companies. So when you look at the makeup of these companies, there are disparities on all fronts. There are age disparities or racial disparities, gender disparities. You know, and one of the things that I've noticed is how everything is skewed towards, you know, for instance, men over women and youth over older workers, right down to how they socialize and, and play. Yeah, sure. I mean, people ask me a lot, you know, I live in Philadelphia, I don't live in Silicon Valley. And people often ask me, you know, why I don't move to San Francisco, or why I'm not sort of more entrenched in that culture. And I'm like, I'm very interested in, in working with tech. And I'm also interested in sort of commenting on tech. But I have no interest in actually being there. Because 
there's so much of it that just feels so like intensely monocultural like this. I mean, it gets so over the top that when you watch something like Silicon Valley, people who work in Silicon Valley are like, yeah, that's pretty much what it's like, right? Like there's a reason that that show rings really true for people. And then it's that you go into these companies and it is, it's like, oh, we've got, you know, the video game setup where people are going to like hang out and play rock band or whatever. And then you've got the like rock climbing wall and you've got this sort of like everybody's, you know, under 30 and kind of part of the same social group. And, you know, I think it really creates this mentality that that's that's sort of who you're designing things for, who you're making things for. And of course, like the world doesn't really look like that. You know, one of the interesting things that you know in your book is that there is such a focus on youth. That there are these rumors that, you know, and I hadn't heard this before, actually. There are rumors that, you know, some startup founders would resort to plastic surgery in order to, to look younger. I mean, that's a that's a story that I've heard passed around. That was, I think, um, something that I was commenting on that I had seen out in the media as as a trend. Um, and I, I mean, it's the kind of thing that rumors spread around about. And I don't know how common that is, but what I think is really telling is just that that's a rumor that exists at all, uh, just how much youth is revered. I mean, there's still that strong bias toward, you know, the like genius programmer in a hoodie who dropped out of Stanford or Harvard and who has this idea that's going to change the world and that he came up with all by himself, you know, in his room in the middle of the night. And uh, part of that is very much wrapped up in this idea of youth and that being where the innovation is going to come from. And I think what we're really, you know, what we're really seeing is we are seeing a tech industry that has prized that for a long time, even as the scope of what uh, the tech industry is doing has widened so much that pretty much like every institution you interact with, the most like intimate parts of your life are so fully intertwined with technology that the idea that that sort of lone cowboy um, that's going to come up with these innovative ideas for us, it seems like it doesn't really make any sense, right? Like it doesn't make sense that that is going to be the way that we're going to create a functional digital society. And I think that what's what's happened is that the culture in the tech industry just hasn't caught up to the reality. And what we're starting to see is all of these like really toxic implications, right? We're seeing all kinds of um, examples of ways in which technology might be hurting us or working against us. And, you know, we're seeing that come out, whether we're talking about things like election hacking or we're talking about things like artificial intelligence, or we're just talking about sort of the mundane shit that our technology does on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, one of the things that, that still surprises me is that people who are outside of the industry, you know, they're, they're often surprised by some of the decisions that are made by companies in relation to the user experience. You know, for instance, you know, on Twitter, Jack Dorsey, you know, people complain about the experience of women and feminists on, on Twitter and why it's taken so long for them to take action against, you know, people who are, you know, constantly harassing them. You know, and they don't really understand why protections seem to be skewed away from women and away from people of color and others in underrepresented minority groups in favor of people who are like himself, you know. And I was thinking about it, and there really is no incentive for them to care about groups other than those who are like them. There's no incentive for him to care about the harassment of black feminists on Twitter or the abuse of the transgender community. And, you know, they have no personal reason that would push them towards thinking about the experiences of these groups online, you know, which is why I always say representation matters. 
Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at something like Twitter, what I think you see very clearly is that they also spent way too long minimizing those issues, right? So they were founded by, you know, four young white men who kind of came together and thought, wouldn't it be cool if, and it was like, wouldn't it be cool if you could kind of post these live updates, raw, real from the road, kind of share them with each other. At first they called it like, you know, like a digital version of like the CB radio. And that might have sounded fun in theory, right? Like, I mean, I can totally understand how you're sitting around a room and you come up with an idea and you're like, wow, what if we did that? And the problem is that, you know, nobody was asking hard questions at that early point or until way too late about like, okay, but what if somebody was trying to abuse this? Um, have we just created a system that's really easy to abuse? And what are we going to do about that when that happens? And the thing is that they started getting reports of lots of abuse happening on Twitter pretty early. You know, black adoption of Twitter happened pretty fast. And so in like, oh gosh, around maybe 2008, 2009, 2010, the usage of Twitter amongst the black community was going up much higher than or much more quickly than it was for, for white people. I mean, obviously, like black Twitter is, is now such a massive part of the Twitter experience if you're paying any attention. And so they started also getting a lot of reports, particularly from black women, that they they were experiencing abuse on the platform. And they spent a really long time ignoring it. And so when you start seeing Twitter actually saying like, oh, gosh, we should do something about this. That's like Dick Costolo, who is the CEO for a while. Um, and that's only a few years ago that he was like, oh, we actually suck at dealing with abuse. And that's when they kind of first started to organize themselves in a way to potentially address some of it. And I think at that point, they were in a really defensive position. They had really entrenched beliefs. They felt like they needed to sort of like defend their past actions. And they were woefully ill-equipped to change things, right? And so what you end up having is a lot of like sticking your head in the sand and a lot of like doubling down on decisions that have harmed people. And I think that that leads us right to where we are right now, where you have somebody like Jack effectively, you know, shielding fascists on Twitter um, because it's easier for him, right? Like it's easier and more comfortable for him to hide behind some ideas about free speech than it is to truly hear and see the experiences of people who are not like him and change and do something about it. You know, but now that these companies have matured and these practices are in the spotlight, everyone is watching Facebook and Twitter and how they protect users and how they handle bias. And especially all eyes are on their hiring practices. And you're right that, you know, they're often defensive in response to any criticism. And one of their defenses to the question of, you know, why is your workforce so homogenous? They often blame the pipeline, but that's not really the cause, right? I mean, why is it not accurate to blame the pipeline? So I think that there's, it's like the pipeline is an easy excuse. And the pipeline excuse is basically saying, well, not enough women or people of color or insert whatever demographic you want there um, are studying computer science or getting into engineering. And so there's not enough of them to hire. We would love to hire more of them, but there's just not enough in the pipeline. And I think what that really does is that sort of excuses them, right? It's a way to pass the buck to say, it's not our fault. There couldn't be anything we're doing. So I think that that's really problematic for a few reasons. One of them is that it's just not really very true. I mean, there may not be as many people studying those fields as there are like, like white guys studying those fields, sure. But there's actually way more than are getting hired. And the attrition rates, particularly for people of color, are really high. So it's like you end up in these companies and then you're like, oh, no, never mind. And you get out. Um 
And what you also have is a lot of bias in the recruiting process. There's been um, a number of studies about this. I remember there was one that actually came out of Facebook, maybe like, gosh, maybe a year and a half ago or so now, where Facebook had talked about like changing its recruitment process so that um, recruiters were partially graded on whether they were bringing in more diverse candidates. And so the recruiters effectively, like they did their job. They went out and found more diverse candidates for the roles that they were hiring for um, because they were incentivized to do so. But what kept on happening over and over again is that you would have candidates make it all the way to the end of the process and they'd be in the final stages, right? And in those final stages, the people who would get, end up getting hired, those were the people that the senior managers who made final choices found were more similar to the people already there. So they'd say like, oh, well, we've got these, you know, couple of finalists for this role, but this one went to Stanford or this one already worked at, you know, name some other big tech company. And when people were relying on those kinds of um, biases toward people who seem similar to the people that they've hired in the past, then the reality was that even though the recruiters were bringing in more qualified, diverse candidates, the people getting hired were not shifting nearly as quickly. So it's a sort of like, you know, this this like lazy equivalency that's happening. Um, I talked to somebody named Nicole Sanchez a while back. She does diversity and inclusion consulting in Silicon Valley. And, you know, she talked about being in a lot of these processes and she's like, you know, they'll, they'll equate like where you went to school or whether you worked at some other company in the past as being, you know, indicative of you being successful there and being quote, a good fit. But the reality is that just recreates the same setup that you already have. So like you, you cannot actually change unless you are willing to acknowledge that that means your company has to look different and be different. And maybe also like your conception of who the best candidate is for the job has been wrong all along because you've assumed the best candidate was like the people you had before and you don't even know what you're missing out on. Right, right, right. I mean, well, when they do release the diversity numbers, what you often see is that the gains that they make in hiring are often undone by higher attrition rates of people of color and people in underrepresented minority groups. So what happens is, you know, when they release these numbers, and although they may have made some efforts to make their workforce more diverse, the culture is such, once you're in, the culture is such that it does not support retaining these folks, right? And their overall numbers for the year either remain flat or they decline. You know, so once you're in, the culture is not inclusive and people just leave, right? Yes, absolutely. You know, I mentioned Nicole Sanchez. And when I spoke with her, one of the things that she talked a lot about was that when she goes in and talks to companies about how they need to, you know, attract and retain more diverse people, um, she finds that oftentimes they will hire big crops of women and people of color at sort of a certain point in the cycle of each year. And then they'll have so much attrition of them that they're like, oh, crap, we got to like rehire a lot of these before we get around to counting the numbers again. So it doesn't look like we dropped. And it's like, OK, then you're just managing to this metric, right? You're not you're not actually really changing anything. You're not looking at like, well, wait a second. Why can't we retain black women on our staff? Right. Which is a, a really like I think a really important question that you need to be asking if you're looking at this and you're going like, wow, you know, over and over again, we have this high level of attrition amongst these groups. Like what's going on and what do we need to do to change that? And like, what about us isn't working for them? Um, and I just think that there's a lot of reluctance to tackle that stuff in an honest way and on, also to just to talk about it openly, like to to actually be willing to um, talk about issues related to race and gender and ability and ageism as what they are and not try to just like, you know, hide them into some generic diversity 
container and like not really actually get into the muck of it. Yeah, well, they're embarrassed. (laughs) I think so. But I also think that there's a piece of it where um, there's a lot of people who are so uncomfortable talking about particularly about race that you know, having a detailed conversation about it is awkward for them and it makes them feel weird and it makes them feel like they're doing something wrong. And so there's a lot of avoidance. Um, Or I think there's also this issue where you've got, you know, companies that are hiring diversity and inclusion officers. And I think they generally have good intentions for doing that. And oftentimes the people in those roles are amazing, but it creates a sense of like, oh, that problem is being worked on over there as opposed to that being a problem that is actually like endemic to the organization and has to be worked on in every single part of the organization. Like it, it, it certainly can be a job to work on diversity and inclusion, but if you are sort of saying like, oh, well, we hired somebody to deal with that, um, then, you know, then, then you're saying like, that's not really my responsibility. And, and I think about that a lot. I mean, I think in the same way that I would say something like, you know, You think about like issues related to security in tech. Those are massive, right? And you may have a team that's devoted to security. But if you just said like, well, I am under no responsibility to build software that is secure because we have a security team, they can deal with it. You would probably be fired because people would say, you're not taking this crucial thing seriously. But I think that that's what happens with a lot of other things in tech from diversity and inclusion of the people who work there to the potential for its products to harm people or to have bias embedded in them. Well, you know, now that we've established what the company culture looks like and how it's shaped, let's talk about their output, the software and the apps that they build. So can you describe what a persona is and how they're used in software developments and, you know, app design and who creates them? So a persona is this is this kind of documentation or like design artifact, quote unquote, as they might say in the in the industry, where you are kind of imagining the desired or potential user of a product, and you are talking about sort of like you know who are they, what do they care about, what are they you know how old are they, what do they do, how much money do they make, um, what detail a persona has really varies depending on who made it and kind of like what their perspective is on what a persona should include. But what you find oftentimes is that in the tech and design industries, you have this sort of reliance on these sort of, you know, fake people, essentially, you could say, right, to say like, oh, you know, this is Angie. She's 37. She's got two kids. She works in HR. That's who we're designing for. And the idea behind them, I think, is good. The idea is that if you can imagine real people and realistic people using your product and you can think about sort of like the idea of a product in the context of people's real lives, then you can do a better job of making sure that it's actually usable for them, that it solves their problems and that it fits into their context. Great. The problem often comes in when we have these really idealized views of who people are and what they need. And so oftentimes what you find, um, and personas are really kind of like one output of this, but it's like a general mentality I think that they're part of, is this um, this mentality that's like imagining users in a really idealized way, imagining people as sort of like um, kind of constantly looking to be delighted and engaged and where the story, sort of like the user story, as they say, the, the story of them using your product successfully, it always ends it's like a happy ending, right? It's like Angie has a problem 
Angie uses this tech product and then Angie's life is better. And what you end up with is oftentimes a lot of, you know, stereotypes built into them, right? So you'll be like, oh, our product is for moms. And so therefore we got to like use all of this messaging that's going to resonate with moms and make sure that the features are focused on moms. And we may not, maybe don't really anticipate that people who aren't moms are going to use it. And that might not be true. But then you also have this sort of focused on positive outcomes. And it really encourages people to think about how is somebody going to be successful with this product? And if you think about that, but then never stop and think, how could this product hurt or how could this product fail them? Then I think you have a real problem. Yeah. Where well, there are no moms working. <laughs> I mean, their culture doesn't make room for moms, really, does it? Um, yeah. No, no, I think that that's true. I mean, I definitely um, know people who, you know, felt like they couldn't really have a career in Silicon Valley and also be a parent. And obviously people do, women do, but it doesn't necessarily make it easy. And, you know, I mean, like, you've probably heard all of the stories about, like, you know, tech companies offering egg freezing as a benefit to employees. Like, that's considered a perk. And I'm not necessarily against that. But one of the things that's really interesting about it is that I always think of it as like, oh, right. That's a quote unquote perk in the same way that like your office providing dinner is a perk. It's like because you can't leave your office and be home or somewhere else at a reasonable hour to eat dinner. So they're providing you with food, which is only a perk if you don't think about what that means for like the kind of hours you're working. Right. So with like egg freezing, it's like, well, that's a perk. But like, are people taking advantage of that perk because they don't feel like they could successfully actually like have a family and go on maternity leave and work at that company and like continue having a career? Well, what does that say about the company culture? Yeah. And and by the way, I know that there are women and there are mothers who work there. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I, I sure I, I, I don't I absolutely don't want to erase the fact that there are mothers who work in Silicon Valley. Some of them, it, it you know, at really high levels, some of them very successfully, but it, it's very difficult. And I definitely know people who have found that it was not possible for them because they, not just because of the policies, but the policies, uh, which are probably like similar to policies in America in general, right? Not great. Right. But also because of the culture being so focused on this sort of like young men, you know, work hard all day, get together and drink beer together after work. Um, you know, like that that's the way that you become part of the team and that you show that you're a quote team player. And if that lifestyle doesn't suit you and if you are not in a, a place in your life where that is right for you, which obviously, like for a mother of a young child, that's probably not going to fit. But there's a ton of other people that doesn't work for either. Right. Um. You just stop feeling like you fit in, and you stop feeling like you could advance because you're kind of like yeah. invisible. Yeah. You know, and the thing about the egg freezing—that's a really good example because the message that it sends to women who want to work there is that we don't expect you to pursue having a family while you're here because, you know, we don't necessarily support that that direction for women who work here. Yeah. I, I mean, and I think that if you talk to these companies, they would say, no, 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 you know, we we definitely support having, you know, parents on our staff and here's what we offer for maternity and paternity leave, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, you know, I think that the idea that women are taking advantage of egg freezing because they do not feel like they can successfully manage a family uh, during the years where they're, you know, most fertile, um, is I think it's like, I don't know, I think it's really telling about sort of like where where we are as a society and also like within tech specifically. You know, speaking of that, can you talk a bit about the example you gave in the book, the app Glow? 
right? What was that intended to do? Sure. So this is one of my favorite topics, and that's uh, period tracking apps. I love talking about period tracking apps because (laughs) they are such a place where technology and like weird assumptions about women and women's health combine. Um, And so, okay, so Glow was an app that was originally created as a period and fertility tracker. And so uh, when it started out, when you would first start the app, you could use it to see whether you uh, were trying to get pregnant or you were trying to avoid getting pregnant um, or also if you were undergoing fertility treatment. So you could kind of set it to these different modes. Weirdly, It was being billed as a period tracking app, but there was no mode you could set it to that said, I just want to track my period. It was all like trying to get pregnant, trying not to get pregnant, right? Like that's, that's what they thought about as use cases. And of course, you know, if you're not sexually active or if you're not sexually active with somebody who can get you pregnant, not, none of those modes make any sense for you. Right. So it was this app that sort of was like arbitrarily leaving out a bunch of people for no good reason. And it was one of the first kind of larger period tracking apps was available, kind of like one of the first products that had a lot of funding. And so therefore like a lot of features, a lot of sort of design capability behind it. And then the other issues with Glow is that it really also made a lot of assumptions about, you know, people who are using it, um, particularly if you're trying to avoid pregnancy, there were a lot of assumptions about uh, the kind of sex you were having and also weird assumptions about things like um, like they would tell you things like whether or not you could snuggle, quote unquote, snuggle, like based <laughs> off of whether you're on your period or not. It was very weird. It was very like paternalistic. Yeah. So at some point they decided it had been started by actually four men. And at some point they decided to kind of like split off, I think, because they got a lot of feedback. They actually found that a, a lot of people were just using it to track their period, which seemed like this big surprise to them. Um, I'm like, did you talk to women? So they eventually split this off to this other app called Eve by Glow. And what Eve was intending to do was to be like a period tracker that also has sex tips. And in theory, it was trying to be kind of like young adult oriented or teen oriented. Um, but it also was so focused on sex and also so focused on sort of like heteronormative sex and very cutesy. And so if you like, if you just wanted to like straight up track a period where you're like, I want to know when I'm going to be menstruating and I want to know sort of where I am in my cycle, if that's what you wanted to know, their products were just like not at all designed for that. And, you know, what you find is that you have these products that it's like when companies bother to serve women's health needs at all, they often serve them in these really sort of narrow ways. And then you have all sorts of other companies that are just like missing the boat entirely. Like when uh, Apple Health launched, they launched the Apple Health tracker as being like, you know, the place for all your health metrics, right? And that was like the messaging that they used out there. And they talked about how you could track all these different things, you know, like from your exercise to like, your, you know, weight and also things like, you don't know, like whether you've had enough chromium intake today, Um, but they launched it and they didn't include a period tracker. And so they kept saying all your health metrics that matter, all your health metrics that matter. And it's like, excuse me, I think that this is a health metric that probably matters for like a lot of people. 
And it took them a whole year after they launched that product for them to finally come in and add a period tracker. And so when you compare these things, it's like you take somebody like Glow, where it's like all of this really sort of biased messaging about, you know, who is tracking their period and why they're tracking it, a lot of assumptions there. And then you have these other products where they've just completely ignored that market altogether. And I think what you're really seeing is just an underinvestment in understanding and designing for this space and a lack of understanding about what women's needs really are. Um, and I should say not just women, you know, anybody who has a period, which is uh, going to be predominantly women, but you know, other other folks as well. And then the other thing that that I really noticed about this that I thought was fascinating is that when I talk about period tracking examples in like conference talks, which I do quite often, I think it's great to get on stage and talk about menstruation. We don't talk about it publicly enough. When I do that, almost always attendees come up to me afterwards and they're just like, oh my God, thank you so much for talking about this. I use fill in the blank period tracker and I'm so frustrated by it because it doesn't do this or does that or it makes this assumption. So many people have so many problems with this particular type of technology. And, you know, so many of the makers behind it don't seem to really be listening. You know, like you said, this app was designed and launched by men. And, you know, kudos to them for seeing a need and trying to, to fill that, that niche. But, you know, it's obvious that they did not get enough input from women or, you know, their sample size was too small. You know, and secondly, when you put an app like this on the market, it sends the message that groups whose experiences are excluded from the app scenarios, their life experience is not the default and therefore is less important. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's a big piece of it is that um, there are all these assumptions about who is an average user, right? And when you assume that your average user is somebody who is trying to get pregnant, they're in a heterosexual relationship, et cetera, then all the decisions that you make to prioritize that person make anybody who's in a different kind of scenario feel like they're not normal in some way. And so, um, you know, what, what I've talked about a lot is this idea that it can actually be really powerful to not just think about who your average user is, but to actually think about, you know, who is the person who is more at the edges. So who's the person in the most marginal, you know, most marginalized circumstances? Who is the person who has the least power or is the most vulnerable? Who is the person whose, you know, menstrual needs are the most sort of like abnormal in a lot of ways. So like, for example, what if somebody with an incredibly long or an incredibly short cycle is using this product, right? Like if you're always looking at you know, who is not, in fact, who we think of as average, but who we think of as maybe being a little bit less common of a case, can they use this? And if they do use this, does it work for them? And I think that those are some questions that are not um, being asked very often because, again, we're so focused in the tech industry on sort of like these fantasy outcomes of like this person is going to use this product and then their life is going to be great and they're going to tell all their friends and our engagement is going to be high and our investors will be very happy, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it creates this very narrow story about what we're building and it makes us um, really prone to lose sight of anything outside of that. Yeah. You know, and the second thing that I thought when I read that story was that, well, also, this is an opportunity for some woman, <laughs> you know, to build a competitive app and to build all of these scenarios in. But then I remembered that women don't get funding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that is a big issue, right? I mean, you know, I've heard over and over and over from um, women who are trying to get funded or who are, you know, trying to change the game and sort of venture capital, where they'll say things like, you know, you walk into a room and you're pitching and men will say things like, 
well, I just don't know. I would have to ask my wife. I don't really understand anything about this market. And it's like, okay, how can you be an investor and decide you're not going to know anything about the market of women? That's not like a niche market. Like that's a large, it's a massive market. And they'll just act so sort of like, oh, I just have no idea if there's actually an audience for that. And it's like, have you met women? Do you talk to women? Do you, do you know women besides your wife? And I think that oftentimes the answer to that is like, not really. I mean, they do, of course, peripherally, but that for a lot of people, um, you know, it's like white guys talking to white guys about white guy stuff. And if that's what your day-to-day really looks like, like within your company, who's at your business meetings, who are you having lunches with, who are you seeing at conferences? If that's sort of what your day-to-day norm is, then yeah, like your context for anybody who's different than that is just woefully limited. And the reality is that means if you are making decisions about products you're going to create or products you're going to fund, you're really like leaving a lot of people out and you're limiting your own success. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you use the the wife as an example, because I think that's really interesting because even when they do talk to women or use women's experiences as an example, it's in the context of their world right? Like not necessarily context of their wife's thinking, right? So you think about this Glow app, their experience with the, the woman who's closest to them is that she's trying to get pregnant probably, right? <laughs> and that's- Well, in fact, that's actually how that product came up to be, yes. Yeah, exactly. So it's still in the context of their world. Well, exactly. And I think, again, it comes back to, you know, if that's the, that is like the closest they can get to understanding women's context is like understanding their wife's context. That to me just seems like not enough. You know, I remember um, one of the people that I talked to for the book is a woman who was working on a project to design a smartwatch a couple of years ago uh, for a fashion brand. And so, you know, the the goal was really to design this sort of fashion forward watch um, because at the time, most of the smartwatches on the market were, you know, kind of like a little bit more techy looking and weren't necessarily designed for the sort of the fashion savvy person. Right. And so she went and did all of this research and, you know, talked to so many women um, and did like all kinds of other research, right? And when she presented her findings back, the people in the room was just all men. They kept saying things like, oh, you know, my wife wouldn't use it like that. My wife just likes to go shopping. She wants a shopping app. And it was like such a reduced view of how people might use this, even though she had all of this research from actual people saying things like what they wanted to do with a smartwatch was they really wanted to stay on top of stuff during meetings. Like the number one thing they said, it was like they wanted a way to discreetly stay on top of things. So for example, like if daycare called while they were in a meeting, they wanted to be able to glance at their watch and know it was daycare and they needed to answer it without making it seem like they were distracted by mom stuff, right? So those kinds of stories, the people in the room just wouldn't listen to them. They were like, that didn't square with the the concept of women they had in their mind because the concept of women in their mind was like based on this extremely limited sample of like the woman that they're married to. And like the woman that is married to some, you know, Silicon Valley executive is not going to be the typical person buying the product. Yeah. And, you know, and I love the example that you give of the, I think this was actually your story where the persona of the the black female executive, which was dismissed as, you know, not realistic. Oh gosh, that was a really, man, that was a really painful meeting. And that was actually one of the times when I was like, I think that the way that I have been taught to think about personas is not working where, you know, we had, we had really gone into this organization that actually had quite a diverse audience that it was, it was reaching, but we'd wanted to make sure that we didn't just replicate these sort of assumptions about who was going to be in like a CEO role. 
Um, so who's going to be like an executive leader? And so we are focusing more in our personas on things like needs and motivations and sort of like what makes them tick. And we just happen to use a picture of a black woman to go with that persona to kind of give her a face, right? To make it seem real. And yeah, it became this whole thing where it was like the one person said like, that's not realistic. You need to change it. And then, you know, we, we did. And then it went to, it went to another person who was like, well, now you have this white male CEO and you have this, you know, black woman in a low level position. And he was offended by that. And like the whole thing I realized looking at it now, I'm like, that was such a losing proposition. Like the whole idea of us trying to tie what people were actually looking like to these personas was really problematic. I do think we need to challenge assumptions about who's using what and what kinds of roles people are in and make sure that you can envision somebody who is, let's say, a, you know, a black woman in a position of power using your product. Great. But I think that that what we were doing in personas was just creating this this it was creating this, you know, misunderstanding about what a persona really meant or should mean and causing more problems than it could solve. Now, I want to talk a bit about form design. I mean, design in general, but specifically about form design. It's it's one of my favorite favorite topics because it's kind of that one of those techie nerdy things that that's fun to analyze. So if you've ever used an online form, you'd know that there are these, you know, finite number of form field types that's used on all forms, drop down boxes, check boxes, etc. You know, and all forms have these. But in this context, you know, problems can arise in the way that the forms are designed. You know, the choices that are presented often reveal biases of the designer. So can you talk a bit about that? Sure. And so I think I think that something that I would say is that forms are also such a baseline part of a digital experience for people. Like if you do pretty much anything online, you're filling out form fields, whether you're trying to buy something online, you're going to be providing your payment information and your shipping information. If you're using Facebook, you're, you know, writing a post and you're posting stuff and clicking buttons, right? Like you're filling out a profile when you sign up for a social media account. All of that stuff is, is filling out forms. And so much of that is often taken for granted where it's, you know, it's like, okay, name and email address and date of birth. And then you get into lots and lots of data that is being collected about things like race, gender. And that's where things start to really go off the rails. I think one, we have definitely developed a tech industry that is very comfortable asking for data that it frankly has no business having. And you see a lot less of that in other places. Like If you go to Europe, there's so much more protection for people's privacy. And there's so much less of a sort of assumption that you should just be handing out all of this data all the time. Um, so that's a piece of it is that we have so many people who are just like, asking for data because, well, we always ask for, I don't know, title. It's like, you don't actually need to know if I'm a miss or a missus in order to ship me something, right? Like it's totally irrelevant. You want that data because you want to gather like a larger dossier on me, but you don't need that. And so part of it is that. But then the other piece of it is that we have, you know, a lot of really outdated assumptions about identity that get baked into these forms. So for example, I just saw a form field the other day. Somebody of course tweeted it at me. I get a lot of this stuff now. Just found a lot of screenshots um, where, you know, she was looking at these options for um, like a race ethnicity menu. And one of them was Latino, Hispanic Latino. And then all the other ones, it said like um, Hispanic Latino, non-white. And then it was like white, not Hispanic Latino, black, not Hispanic Latino, et cetera, et cetera. And she was like, there isn't a form field that actually fits me. She's biracial. And every single one of those was technically incorrect. 
And she couldn't figure out sort of the, the right way to move through that form. I also see a lot of times you have things like, you know, gender selection. It's binary. It says male or female. No option to select anything else. No option to like not select an answer. And there's really no no reason to be doing that at this point. I mean, it's 2018. Uh, maybe just stop asking about gender in the first place. And if that's data that you really need to have, then it's really important to make sure that people can, you know, give you information that matches who they actually are and what they want to be known as. But we've we've sort of built a lot of digital culture around having these data inputs that suit sort of like our simplified view of the world and not how the world actually looks. And I think that that's really problematic for a lot of reasons. It can be very alienating for people, but also it results in data that we think is reflective of people because they had to pick something, but in fact is not reflective of them because they couldn't pick the thing that was reflective of them. Yeah. Let me play devil's advocate for a minute because, you know, those choices are intentionally intended to be confining, right? Because if you were to, let's just say you used open text box for something like that, right? And people were to put in like whatever they, whatever they wanted, right? Or whatever, whatever was accurate for them. And then you, you would have so much data that you wouldn't be able to parse it. Right. I mean, so how do you solve a problem like that? Well, I guess the question is, what is what are you actually trying to do with that data? I don't know. <laughs> well, that's so that's the thing. I mean, I think that there's there's many answers to that question. It depends on your product. But I think the reality is that for a lot of companies, they don't know either. Um, they're collecting that data and they don't necessarily know. I think there is very, 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 very few scenarios in which somebody actually needs things like your title uh, where they need to be deciding whether you are Mr. Ms. or Miss or whatever, right? So in a lot of forms, um, th- that should just be eliminated altogether. I think that when it comes to something like gender, you can certainly have some pre-selected stuff that is what, you know, the majority of people are going to select, but then you can have people fill in something other than that if they'd like to, um, that's not going to scrub your data very much. And again, what are you trying to do with that data? Um, The other thing you can ask people about, you know, oftentimes is like what they actually want, what they're interested in versus who they are. So oftentimes, you know, people will use your gender information to decide like, I don't know, which kinds of promotions you should get. Like, should we send you the like women's clothing features in email or should we send men's stuff? And like, you can just ask people what they're interested in. The other thing I would say is that, you know, when it comes to something like race, one of the problems is that it tends to be like a select one scenario. And because that's that's how it's been on like paper forms in the past and these things just get passed along and passed along and not questioned. But being able to select a number of options, I think is a really simple way that you would be able to better account for people because uh, for a lot of people, their identity is not so simple and doesn't feel right to just select one thing and not the other. You know, like if you are, um, you know, like, one parent is Asian and another parent is black. What What is the right answer? Uh, which part of your identity do you get to show? I think that those kinds of solutions can be pretty simple. But again, I also think that a lot of it comes down to just questions that are never asked. There's, there's not enough discussion within the industry about, do we need this in the first place? How are we actually planning to use this? Would it be a problem if, if we didn't have clean data, like if people did enter whatever they want? In what way would that be a problem? You know, is there a way that we can normalize that on our side and not make the user do it? You know, there's a lot of questions that could be asked, but none of those questions are being asked if you just assume that the way forms have always been is fine. You know, again, playing devil's advocate, 
What about the need to collect data from the public to determine, you know, disparities, disparities around race? You know, I'm thinking about college admissions or school discipline or, you know, lending, for instance. I mean, collecting data for the purposes of ferreting out disparities and biases that we want to fix, you know, I personally would not want that data collection to stop. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it really depends. I guess the point is saying, like, you really need to understand why you're asking for everything you're asking for. And I don't think that that is the case. I think that there is a tendency to want data because data is perceived as inherently good. So we should get as much of it as we can from people. And I think what we're seeing, I mean, if you look at, like, I don't know, basically everything that's come out of Facebook in the past two years, we are seeing that, like, getting all of the data you can possibly get out of people and then figuring out what to do with it later does not necessarily lead us to good outcomes. Nobody's saying, you know, we should never collect racial information. Obviously, if you're going to talk about disparities, um, you need to have data for that. And there are tremendous disparities amongst people of different races. And we do need to be doing a really good job of, of figuring out, you know, where that's happening and being able to have the data for it. But that doesn't mean that, like, random tech company with a random consumer product needs to have that data. Yeah, true. So speaking of race, can you talk a bit about that app Nextdoor, which I which I haven't used, but when I was reading about it in your book, it kind of made me angry. So talk about this app and how it encourages racial profiling. Yeah, so Nextdoor is interesting. Nextdoor is an app that allows you to basically know what's going on in your immediate neighborhood. So um, I might be able to find out that the people on my block, for example, had their car broken into, or maybe there's going to be a yard sale down the street, or maybe there's going to be a road closure in my neighborhood, right? So it's like your immediate neighborhood. And um in theory, that sounds great. In practice, Nextdoor was having a lot of problems with racial profiling. So what would happen is that people would be posting crime and safety reports. So like I said, somebody breaking into a car, for example, right? But they'd be posting these crime and safety reports that when you looked at them a little closer, they didn't actually indicate a crime taking place. It was basically like a sketchy guy drove through the neighborhood. And the description of the sketchy guy that drove through the neighborhood was he was black. And there was like no other data than that, right? Or, you know, like I saw a Latino guy walking a dog. I mean, that's not what they <laughs> wrote, but that's effectively, if you if you read it, like that's all that was there was like a Latino guy walking a dog. And, and so there were a lot of reports of racial profiling. And of course, that can be really dangerous, right? Like, I mean, that kind of low level racism on the app is one thing. But also if you start like, you know, having your neighbors go after any black person who drives through the neighborhood and the police are called, I mean, right? Like that's a problem. So Nextdoor did not necessarily fix this out of the goodness of their hearts. What they did is they started getting a lot of pushback from both like neighborhood, like community groups, as well as from government. So uh, they were getting bad press and the city of Oakland, which is one of their major partners, was threatening to pull out of their partnership with them if they didn't address it. So what Nextdoor did is they started working with a group called Neighbors for Racial Justice, which is based in Oakland, and they looked at how could we approach this differently. The first idea that Nextdoor had was that they should be able to flag a post as racial profiling. The problem was that people don't necessarily know what that is. And so, or like, aren't going to use it appropriately. So like, there would be posts where somebody would say something like, I hate dogs, and people would flag that racial profile. <laughs> nope, that's not what that means. And so that wasn't really very helpful. What Neighbors for Racial Justice did is they said, you know, we think that we should be looking at this form itself and that the way that people are submitting the form might be 
encouraging them or allowing them, making it easy for them to submit things that are racially profiling. And so what they did is they actually redesigned that form to kind of slow it down. So instead of it being basically like a big open text field, write whatever you want in there and hit submit, they actually made it like a two-step process. You have to describe the event. Then you have to describe the people involved. And when you describe the people involved, instead of a big text field, it's broken down into smaller fields. But you're not allowed to submit the form if all you enter is race and ethnicity information. You have to enter additional detail because you have to have actually been paying attention to what this person looked like, right? And so what they found was that this dramatically decreased the number of reports that went in that were racially profiling. Um, and I think that that's, that's a really good thing. I think that there are some, there are definitely some missteps along the way. I talked to some folks from Neighbors for Racial Justice who worked on this and like a lot of the, the recommendations they had didn't get implemented. And it also took Nextdoor like a year or something after they launched this on desktop for them to launch it on mobile, which is a big problem when you think about how a crime and safety report would occur. The likelihood of somebody wanting to post that from mobile is really high. So if you were on a mobile device, you could still go through an easier process and end up posting something racially profiling. Um, so that's that's an issue. I think the next door could have done this a lot faster. But what I think was interesting about it is that they found that not only did it really decrease racially profiling posts, it also decreased the number of crime and safety reports in general because they made it harder for people to post them. And that is generally seen as a negative metric in Silicon Valley, right? Like fewer reports equals less engagement, less views, right? And they had to be able to say like, okay, this is going to cause a dip in some of our metrics. This is going to look like the form is working less good, but actually this is important. This is better for the safety of our communities. So why is this book, I was reading your last chapter and you were talking about in the scope of what's happening politically, like, is it really important for us to think about these things, right? These apps and, you know, what technology companies are doing, are there bigger fights to fight? And so what was your conclusion? Why is this important for us to think about right now? Well, I think, I think we're seeing it, we're living it. You know, I was writing this book leading up to, and just after the last presidential election, it was a really fraught time and it's only become more fraught, I think, since then. And more and more has come out about the role of technology in our electoral system and as well as, you know, the way that tech companies have been maybe abusing our data, right? Like we've seen a ton of evidence of that over the last couple of years. A lot of what I'm talking about in the book is not just that issue, but sort of interconnected issues, some of them seemingly very small. Like every single time you use an app that forces you to enter information about yourself that it doesn't actually need or that doesn't reflect your identity, every single time a tech product goes out on the market that didn't consider whether it could harm somebody, every single time these sort of biased decisions are made at a small level, what they really do is they reinforce a culture in the tech industry and in our culture at large, because tech is so influential and is so pervasive about who matters and what matters. And that is massively important. I think we're seeing that everywhere in society right now. And if we're not paying attention to it in the small ways, it makes it really hard to, to push back against the big ways. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, thank you so much, Jen. Thank you so much for listening. Again, Technically Wrong is out today on paperback, and it's a really, really good read. You can find links to it in today's show notes. And again, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your support. And keep up the good fight.